Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Back in the fall of 2021, I did a mini-series where I covered three popular fruit trees in a row. The apple tree, the coconut palm, and the citron, which also included citrus trees in general. But there are so many more trees from which we get delicious fruits that are common to see at grocery stores and farmers markets, so it's time for a fruit tree mini-series number two. Over the month of May, I am going to explore the history of the peach tree, the pear tree, and this week we're starting things off with the mango tree. Mangoes are one of the most iconic tropical fruits. It's not uncommon to hear it referred to as the king of fruits among some cultures. And as with many other quote-unquote common fruits of the modern day, it has been on an incredible journey to get from wherever it came from to store shelves around the world. And to have it spread so far, it must have been deeply valued in its native lands. Sure enough, we'll learn the influence the mango has had on major religions and modern cults, as well as its unique biological variability and fascinating relatives within the plant kingdom. are fairly common around the world, and you likely already know what these fruits look like. And if not, we'll learn soon enough. But what most may be unfamiliar with is what kind of tree a mango comes from. In their native jungles, as these are tropical jungle plants, mango trees can reach heights of up to 100 feet or 30 meters tall, with a wide spreading canopy that creates a good deal of shade. These large trees aren't necessarily where the mangoes in our kitchen come from, though, but rather from some farm where they are cultivated to grow much shorter than that, usually no more than 30 feet or 10 meters tall, and typically not even that tall. Can't have it too difficult to you know, actually reach the fruits. Mango trees are described as being broadleaf evergreens, meaning the canopy stays green all year long, but the leaves are more leaf-shaped rather than needle-shaped like the evergreens found in forests that experience a cold, snowy winter. And when I say leaf-shaped, I'm talking like a long oval, reminiscent of a spear or lance head. They're a very dark shade of green and thick and leathery in texture. These last descriptors help the tree retain water when there are any dry periods. Another reason these trees can be evergreen is because of the limited variability of temperature across seasons that occurs closer to the equator. The leaves handle dry periods, and because of where they grow, they don't have any significantly cold periods that require them to drop leaves to conserve energy. That being said, I don't mean these trees never drop their leaves. In fact, once a new leaf grows in, it only sticks around for about a year before falling down to the jungle floor. Evergreen simply means that the tree is continuously producing new leaves, enough to replace the leaves that fall, so the canopy specifically is forever green. New leaf growth happens sporadically and a bit randomly only on some branches at a time, which I find incredibly curious as opposed to more temperate trees found in North America or Europe where the whole canopy will collectively produce new leaves. Despite the irregularity of leaf growth, mango flowers tend to bloom across the tree all at once. These flowers are tiny and form in these dense clusters ranging in color from white to orange to pink. As many as three to four thousand flowers can bloom on a single tree at a time, 
likely in order to maximize its chances of successful reproduction. And this is not the only strategy to do so. While research shows that flies are the top pollinators of the mango, it also gets help from a number of other insects, as well as bats, and at the very least, can just let its pollen be carried on the wind. On top of that, many mango cultivars have a high probability of producing flowers that have both male and female parts, and can just pollinate itself. There's a lot of attention on the pollination of these trees because, well, that's how we get mangoes. Mango fruits themselves are highly variable in size, shape, and color. Their shape is often oval like an egg or a you know, football or rugby ball, but they can also be almost perfectly spherical. They can be as small as the size of your fist or as long as a football or rugby ball. And their colors come in a wide variety of solid or swirling patterns involving yellow, red, purple, and green. Not at all like a regulation football or rugby ball. These colors are merely skin deep though. Beneath that leathery skin layer is the pulp or flesh of the fruit, what you eat, that ranges in color similar to egg yolk, from pale yellow to gold to orange. There's only so much mango flesh, as most of the middle of the fruit is taken up by the not at all appetizing seed casing. These are the details I wish I knew when I first tried a mango. Unless you know proper strategies for peeling and slicing a mango, you're going to be very confused on what parts you can or can't eat. And for some, there are even more concerns and cautions regarding how you eat the fruit due to the tree's toxicity. Mango tree sap is a common skin irritant that causes allergic reactions varying in severity depending on the individual's biological response. Some of that sap can end up on the mango skin, and for those who do experience strong allergic reactions, it's recommended to peel the skin with one knife and then cut the flesh with a separate clean knife in order to prevent any cross-contamination. The reaction that you would get, as well as your personal likelihood to get a more severe reaction, is similar to reactions from plants like poison ivy. And that's because these plants are closely related. They are both found in the plant family known scientifically as Anacardiaceae, commonly referred to as the cashew family. As the name suggests, this is also where we find the plants that produce cashew nuts, but also pistachio nuts. These are both trees that I plan on featuring in another nut tree mini-series, sometime later this year. Anacardiaceae, which is just a really fun name to say, is ultimately home to 83 plant genera, or groups, and around 860 species in total. Some other interesting and significant trees include the Peruvian pepper tree and the African marula, both of which are awesome and trees I'd like to do whole episodes on in the future. It's honestly astonishing and a bit of a bummer that it's taken me all of 75 episodes to finally touch on this plant family. There are so many members with very cool biological traits and great significance in human cultures. Now, within Anacardiaceae, our mango tree belongs to the genus Mangifera, both of which share the same root word. That word, mango, is credited as coming from Portuguese. But it is a name that the Portuguese adapted from a word they learned from the Malay language of Southeast Asia. And that word for the fruit came from a number of languages spoken across southern India. This tracking of language tells us the journey that the mango fruit has been on as it has been presented to the rest of the world from its source of origin, South Asia. 
This fruit comes from a single species, called either the Indian or just common mango, known scientifically as Mangifera indica. There are dozens of other species in the Mangifera genus, and some do produce edible fruits similar to our common mango, but the fruits that you have eaten come from this single species. That being said, there are hundreds of common mango cultivars, or cultivated varieties. Cultivars are human domesticated types of a single species that have been produced in order to achieve specific characteristics for a tree's fruit, or its flowers, or for the tree itself to look a certain way. If you have a specific idea of what a mango looks like in your mind, meaning a specific coloration pattern, or size, or taste, you might simply be most familiar with a specific mango cultivar. And this is to be expected. There are certain cultivars, or groups of cultivars, that are more popular in some areas of the world rather than others. Some countries expect mangoes to be totally green, or mostly yellow, or to have a nice spot or a blush of purple. A mango bought in Missouri may taste totally different from a mango bought in Spain or in India. Genetically, all cultivars belong to one of two types of mangoes, Indian mangoes and Southeast Asian mangoes. It was once believed that there were two separate and simultaneous domestication events in these two regions. But modern science, anthropology, and language studies point to the mango coming from India first, then being brought to Southeast Asia, then everywhere else. But that is only scratching the surface on this fruit's journey and its cultural impact along the way. evidence of mango cultivation dates back 4,000 years ago in India. Back then, the fruit was known as the Amrafal. Between then and now, its name has changed and morphed numerous times, which always poses an interesting challenge for historians who wish to study it. But once you identify what a name is referencing, its impact on the culture that named it is readily apparent. Regardless of what the mango fruit has been called, its name has also commonly been given as honorary titles for important people. Most commonly, they were titles for high-ranking courtesans, romantic companions for members of upper-class society. This makes sense, seeing as the mango is often associated with the theme of love and with the Hindu god of erotic love and desire, Kamadeva. Kamadeva has a bit of a Cupid thing going on, with the usual depiction of wielding a bow and arrows. He is said to have five different types of arrows, all tipped with different flowers, one of which is tipped with mango flowers specifically. I imagine the sweetness of the fruit was a primary driver in connecting it with the sweetness of love. For around 1,500 years after its earliest evidence of cultivation, the mango would continue to primarily stand as a cultural icon just for India in the Hindustani region. Things would change with the advent of Buddhism in the northeast of this region. The mango became an important fruit and symbol in this new faith system, with several stories involving and incorporating it into some eternal lesson. One such story comes from one of the last ten past lives of the Buddha, one of his final reincarnations before being born as Siddhartha Gautama. 
In this past life, the Buddha is a king, or lord, or some other seat of royalty, and he's traveling through an area on his elephant surrounded by ministers and retainers and other followers, when he sees a mango tree full of delicious fruits. In some versions of the story, he just mentally notes how good they look and decides to come back for them later, while in others, he does take one, but again thinks he can come back for more later. Regardless, everyone following the king also sees this super nice mango tree and decides they don't have the same patience and all go in to get themselves a tasty looking mango. Well, later on, the king returns to this mango tree and realizes that not only did his followers take every mango on this tree, but a ton of leaves have been shaken off and many branches were broken and had fallen to the ground. The king was astonished by this truly sorry state of the tree but then noticed nearby that there was another mango tree that was standing perfect and unblemished. So he went in for a closer look to investigate why, and realized this mango tree had no fruit to begin with. His interaction with these mango trees kept him up at night, or even gave him nightmares, until he made a realization. The destroyed mango tree was the way it was because it had precious things to lose, and that loss had a great impact on the individual. Meanwhile, the fruitless tree went unbothered, and the king came to the understanding that we ourselves live in fear of such destruction because of what we have to lose and because of our intense immersion in the world around us. Should we live without such burdens, we too could go on in our lives untouched and unbothered. Another story explains how in the Buddha's life as the Buddha, he was once gifted a mango grove to serve as a place for him to rest under. And because of that first gift, it became common for Buddhists to give a young mango tree, or just a mango itself, as a gift to others. As Buddhists traveled throughout Asia in the centuries to follow, they would often give mangoes as gifts. And this is thought to be how the mango first traveled to Southeast Asia, where it was then cultivated heavily and separately enough to create an entire second type of this fruit. Around the time that Buddhists took the mango east, the Western world of the day would have also gotten their first taste of the sweet fruit. Writings indicate that Alexander the Great, in his travels to the Indus Valley region, was able to try this exotic delicacy and wholeheartedly gave his approval. But his return to Europe did not yet signal the migration of the mango in that direction. Mangoes were not commonly seen in European trade or markets until the Arab traders began their trade empire that connected resources across the known world after the 9th century of the Common Era. As the centuries passed, the known world got bigger and bigger, and come the 16th century, it would be various European powers that colonized resources across the seas. For the mango, this colonization would come when Portugal set up shop in Southeast Asia. They would name it the mango, which was similar to what it was then called in Indonesia, and proceed to introduce the fruit and the plant to West Africa, then Brazil, then the rest of the Americas. Mango tree plantations were set up wherever they could grow, primarily in tropical latitudes close to the equator. Because of their climatic limitations, Mango production isn't something that ended up being established in most of the United States, except for South Florida. Mango trees were likely first introduced to this region towards the end of the 1700s, but it took around a century to successfully propagate an orchard. Most of Florida exists in what is called a human subtropical climate zone, meaning its climate is near to that of tropical latitudes 
but not quite. This factor, combined with the fact that most of the attempts at mango cultivation in this area were made with a single variety, led to a long period without success. Finally, in 1889, a collection of varieties were planted in very southern Florida, where it's as tropical as it gets, and one survived. The Mulgolba mango was not exactly the most popular variety in regards to taste and texture, but it survived. This tree was crossbred with another that showed some promise and led to the creation of the Hayden variety of mangoes. This Hayden mango would throw the doors open for this fruit's production in the United States, becoming the most popular commercially grown variety in the United States all the way until World War II. And during its long reign, the Hayden would be crossbred with a number of other varieties and create new mangoes that to this day achieve significant popularity in regions around the world. The United States currently gets 99% of its mangoes from South America and the Caribbean islands, but they are nearly all varieties that were originally developed in Florida thanks to the creation of the Hayden. The most popular variety of mango in the U.S. right now is considered to be the Tommy Atkins mango, which according to the Arizona Daily Star out of Tucson, is garbage. How could a garbage mango be the most popular variety in America? I don't know, maybe ask the dumpster fire that is the red delicious apple. I've only had mangoes a couple times, and honestly I wasn't a huge fan. Part of me is now convinced though, that this is because I've only tried Tommy Atkins mangoes, and I clearly need to seek out the good stuff. But I digress. While the United States had a frenzy of developing new varieties of mango, on the other side of the world, China was having their own frenzy of looking at mangoes. In the 1960s, China experienced the great proletarian cultural revolution led by Mao Zedong, which plunged the nation even deeper into autocratic communist rule and involved a great deal of fighting and bloodshed. One such conflict that took place in 1968 saw a violent victory for the working class, and Mao gifted these workers with a box of mangoes he had gotten from Pakistan. Prior to this point, China had been introduced to the mango, but the mango never fully integrated into Chinese culture like with other imported resources or like the mango did in other regions. Many of the people who now saw these mangoes were seeing them for the very first time. And let's be real, mangoes are beautiful. So these workers simply, but extensively, admired these mangoes. They didn't eat them. With this gift, Mao's propaganda team started to really push this symbol of the mango as being a representation of his affection for the workers and his generosity as a leader. So China went mango crazy. But again, not for eating. Some would encase a mango in resin to preserve its vibrant colors. Many would have wax models of mangoes. A great deal of art was made involving depictions of the mango. I often mention how a tree providing us with food is a very obvious excuse to give that tree cultural significance. Of course, we worship that which provides us with a fundamental basic need. But here we have an example of a tree-based food becoming hugely significant within a specific culture, and it wasn't because the people in this culture ate the food. It's just astonishing. China is still mango-crazy to this day, but they do eat the mangoes now. And I didn't have to Google that to make sure. 
you do not need to look at my search history. But China is, by an incredibly wide margin, the top importer of mangoes of any country in the world. And it started because they really liked looking at them, and their leader had just been so nice to give it to them. In regards to exports, most mangoes are shipped from South America and Southeast Asia, the former going to the US and the latter going to the rest of the world. Well, let's be real, both just go to China. All that being said, what about India? The place where mangoes come from, where this beautiful fruit has held deep significance for over a millennium before anyone else laid eyes on it. India is far and away the top producer of mangoes in the world. They grow four times the number of mangoes than the second largest producer, which is China. India sees some activity in the global trade scheme, but they eat almost all of their mangoes. Unsurprisingly, it is still a staple food there, whether as a snack or a meal in itself, or as part of a delicious entree or dessert, or just as a cultural symbol. Like I said, when a tree gives us food, we love that tree. And considering how much humans have loved the mango, I feel like I need to give it another chance myself. Find yourself a mango, and enjoy the sweetness that has inspired passionate love, indulgence in the world, and a healthy period of rest. If you're interested in seeing me talk about trees rather than just listening, I encourage you to check out my Tree Walks with Thomas video series available on my Patreon for subscribers at the Tree Huggers tier. This last week, I unpacked the muck boots I used to wear as a biologist and traveled to a bog in New Hampshire. While looking for larches with new needles coming in, I discovered a wet world of fascinating swap plants and just the absolute best moss. To watch this tree walk, all my other tree walks, and get production updates and early access to new episodes, check out patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees. I'll be continuing this fruit tree mini-series in two more weeks when I explore what is possibly my least favorite fruit, the pear. I've talked about a pear before, the Bradford pear, and how it is among my least favorite trees, so my attitude towards the fruit in general is par for the course. Looks like my editor tried to get me to say pear for the course. Come on, Lori. But I will put aside my personal feelings because pears are still one of the most popular fruits in the world behind bananas, apples, oranges, and mangoes. So come back May 16th to learn about the pear tree's influence on an incredible niche culture and religion, as well as its incredible diversity and popularity in East Asian countries. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is by at BoomerangBrit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs> <laughs>